What's up, Pop Paranormies? It's Karima here, a.k.a. The Blur Girl. I'm a writer, critic, and content creator, parked at the intersection of geekdom and diversity. And I am Chuck Collins, comic book artist, former bouncer, and horror connoisseur. And this is Pop Paranormal from Travel Channel. Welcome back to the show where we take you from the scary screen to behind the scenes of the most talked about horror movies and shows. Now, folks, it's been a minute and we've really missed you, right, Chuck? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We've missed geeking out, you know, over our favorite movies and TV shows. And while we've been away, we were nominated for a little award. That's right. We were nominated for Best Entertainment Podcast for the Ambies. And if you don't know, the Ambies are like the Oscars for podcasts. So we've kind of made it, guys. We've made it to the big time. (laughs) Except we didn't get a chance to walk on the, you know, red, well, champagne carpet this year and go all fancy in Hollywood. I mean, we had champagne, but that was really about it. (laughs) (laughs) Even though we didn't win, being nominated was such a big honor for us. It really was, especially after one season. So thank you so much to everyone who's been listening and enjoying the podcast. It really, really means a lot. Now, we got to bring it down a little bit because what we're about to share with you is a particularly special episode, even if it's not the easiest thing to talk about. So several months ago in October, we recorded an incredible episode with film director Jeff Barnaby about his movie, Blood Quantum, which happens to be one of my and Chuck's favorite zombie films. Yeah, we love that film. It's got everything a horror fanatic would want. Zombies, running into wood chippers, I mean, you name it. <laughs> yeah, a zombie mother eating her newborn child. Yeah. So bloody and crazy. And in addition to being a great zombie tale with lots of guts and gore, the film itself is rich with complex themes. The movie tackles indigenous history, the destruction of the environment, and the trauma of the colonialism. Yeah, that intergenerational trauma, it was so deep the way he wove that in. And Jeff did everything. He wrote, he edited it, he directed it, and he scored the music for the film. He did an incredible job. When he came onto the podcast, we were so excited to talk to him because we had the best time geeking out about all the stuff and all the meaning behind the film with the actual creator. And he was so kind and thoughtful and dissected so much of the symbolism and scenes of Blood Quantum with us. Absolutely. What we did not know was that our interview with Jeff Barnaby would be his last. Two weeks after interviewing him, Jeff passed away from cancer. This was absolutely crushing news for us to hear. He was such a talent on the rise, a fiercely creative filmmaker who had already been hailed as a visionary and influential director. And he did so much to raise Indigenous voices and tell Indigenous stories. Yeah, I completely agree. And we spoke to Jeff's family and they gave us their blessing to air this episode because it hit hard when we first heard. And it was important to us to make sure that we had their blessing. Yeah. Like we wanted to make sure we were honoring him. For us, we're just honored that he chose to spend time talking to us. And in retrospect, Those were some of his final days. And we're just excited to keep his memory and his work alive. And we hope you continue to watch his films and spread the word about Jeff. Absolutely. Before we get into the interview, we want to tell you a little bit about the film so you can follow the conversation. 
Karma, take it away. Set in 1981, Sheriff Trailer has his hands full on the Mi'kmaq Reservation Red Crow in Quebec, Canada. There's a zombie outbreak, but those with indigenous blood are immune. But the non-indigenous members of society are being wiped out, and Trailer creates a safe haven for survivors on the reservation. Now, along with Trailer are his father and village elder, Gisigu, his son, Joseph, Joseph's girlfriend, Charlie, and Trailer's stepson, Lysol. Now, Lysol believes that the apocalypse is an opportunity to eradicate the white man, and his crew release a zombie on the refugees and begin to murder whoever's left. Charlie, who is white, and pregnant, gets bitten, and in the end, Joseph is forced to kill her after she gives birth, but before she turns. The last person on the land is Gisugu, who refuses to leave the land of his people. Without further ado, here's Jeff Barnaby's final interview. Jeff Barnaby, thank you so much for joining us today on Pop Paranormal. Now, we are so excited to talk about your movie, Blood Quantum, which, you know, I'm just a huge fan of, and I think Chuck is too. Oh, yeah, man. How you doing, bro? Doing really good. Thanks for having me. So what's it like to portray a pandemic on film and then live through one? I think that's the most interesting thing about pandemics when you see them portrayed in films is Mm -hmm. that they happen like overnight. It's like Mm -hmm. Down of the Dead... From the time Sarah Polly gets her first encounter with a zombie yeah. to the point where Ving Rhames find her, you get the impression the entire apocalypse happened. Right. Yeah. Right. Hour. So I think when you start seeing pandemics fall apart over the course of years, you start seeing things like that, where you start seeing panic fatigue and fatigue just in general. Mm-hmm. I know I feel it. I live in a giant house, so like I can literally go all day and never have to see anybody. Right. And that mm-hmm. is a blessing. There was a lot of scenes in there, Jeff. I'm gonna be real with you, like, I, and this is just me giving more of a, a compliment to you as a director. Like, there was some things you did that us zombie fans seeing the evolution of zombie films, because you know. Zombie films fell off and then they came back and everybody started making them again. But then it was like, it was what you brought to the genre that was original that stood out. Before that, the one that really stood out to me was Shaun of the Dead because it was more of a comedic thing, you know, that kind of, I kept to that. And I said, ever since then, there's been all these remakes and everything. When I stumbled across your movie, it resonated in such a way with me that, that other zombie movies haven't. The social commentary in there was just, it wasn't heavy-handed, but at the same time, it was deep cuts. You never had to go in with a heavy hand because right. everyone knows the history. They may know it in vague strokes, but they know it's there. So I think if you make little allusions to it here and there without pulpit thumping or preaching, you can yeah. get away with a lot more. Well, not necessarily get away with a lot more, but... Lean more into your entertainment and let your smart audience appreciate yes. that side without having to alienate the fun part. Right. I completely agree. And there were so many layers to this movie. And that's what I loved about it. It had your standard zombie hits. You got the last stand. You got like <laughs> one girl making dumb decisions. <laughs> but I love the little subtle things like the father who tried to get into the camp with the daughter who was already dying. And when they let him in, he brings her blanket with him. Right. The girl's sick. 
Welcome to our palliative care. What's going on here? I haven't done anything wrong. You're bringing your sick here. What's right about it? My little girl got injured, that's all. She needs help. Uh, I was told I could get help here. Who told you? How do you know that this fucking town he didn't come here with this refugee Pollyanna act? He plant this infected bitch right on our doorstep. And just that concept of white man with blanket. <laughs> with, you know, yeah. You know, basically a plague attached to it. And then he turns and is the mm -hmm. problem. You know, did you think everybody would get that? Or was that a intentional metaphor? Yeah, I thought everybody would get it. Like, I thought it was pretty, pretty common knowledge that settlers would give smallpox blankets to native tribes in order to wipe them out. And that whole opening, mm -hmm. whole opening to the second act was, was kind of explaining the rules without trying to explain them to pulpit dumpy. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> trying to like okay like the, the people at the wall like <clears throat> you can't get in we, we're here to check to make sure that nobody has bites yeah they never say they're immune it was a kind of hubris if mm -hmm. you will mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I think whereas a lot of native people definitively know that metaphor a lot of white people do not mm -hmm. and yeah. I found that my experience to be I found it to be my experience with a lot of things whereas I would be stating things that would be shared history and shared fact, but only one side would remember it. Yeah, totally. And, and, and that's how history works a lot of times. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other ones in there that you, thinking back, really liked some of the metaphors in the movie, Jeff? What are some of those that you really liked? Hmm. It's so weird to think of it because I don't really, when I write, I think like that. I think about metaphors. I think about the symbology and I think about all the meaning that's going into the film. And when I have that script chock full of that meaning, I try to take it and make it as entertaining as possible. So I think for me, the one with the deepest meaning is in 1981, there was a raid on my reserve mm -hmm. and they put a barricade right where the barricade now is in the film that, he saw the zombies. Right. So that, mm -hmm. that was like a little homage to that barricade, <laughs> except that it was eating the people that were trying to get in, opposed wow. to feeding the people that were trying to get out as prisoners. Jeff, you just mentioned panic fatigue. And I do want to address that uh, a little bit because that was also portrayed very well in the film. I think Lysol was <laughs> part of that. But because the, the movie starts when, when the plague first hits. And then we jump to six months later. So that panic, that fatigue sets in because people are now used to, this is, this is how we're living. But the, the concept of people with indigenous blood being immune to the zombie virus versus the rest of, I wanted to say the rest of the planet, but I'll just stick to Canada. The rest of Canada. Well, the philosophy was indigenous people, indigenous to their land. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it was kind of like, well, what would happen to the Mohawks? And I said, well, if the Mohawks were indigenous to their land and they were fighting zombies, they'd be immune. Right. Everything was about deracination, which is big of colonization. It's this idea that you're displacing all these people. And I think that's kind of what the stand at the end was. It became like this zombie trope where you make this last stand. But for me, it was kind of like, what if we take that zombie trope and turn it into something else and have this Pacific veteran of the World War II 
Mm-hmm. Like, not want to fight anymore and just kind of die on his land. Yeah. You're talking about Kisugu, yeah. right? Yeah. We need to go. Grandpa, we need to go. I'm not leaving this land again. And listen, he was my favorite character. Yeah. Because when he laid waste to an entire room of zombies with just a samurai sword. Look. I was like, I need his story. What is his story? You know, I, I want a movie just about him. Personally, what I wanted was I wanted like a spinoff of just him traveling the land, becoming like the indigenous Ash Williams from Evil Dead. It's like, we're just going to lay waste <laughs> to everything. There was tons of scenes like that written oh, where okay. there was a much larger screenplay. The original screenplay ended up being like 140 pages, something like that. Oh, wow. So we ended up taking half of that out. Right. And one was the story about how the old man got his sword in the Pacific War. Yeah. How he escaped Japanese internment camps to get to the Pacific front lines and get rescued and continue fighting through the war. There was a whole story there. Wow. It was supposed to be told in animation, but we just didn't have the budget to pull it off. So we ended up doing those three short mm-hmm. animation bumpers rather than like that one big animation sequence. Right. Right. That I would have watched that anime. Yeah. Let's talk about the animation at the beginning and the woman giving birth, who we now know is the zombie that ate mm-hmm. her baby. It's going into the earth and we go down and we see what happened to the baby and the earth and the water and the fish. Is it also a metaphor there about climate change or? Oh, for sure. 100% is a, Black Quantum is a environmental catastrophe film. Mm-hmm. I've always qualified it as that except your tornadoes and your tsunamis and your hurricanes or zombies. That's the only difference. It's like, think of it as if the Earth had an immune system and the immune system were zombies. And their only purpose is to go out and make more zombies because all those zombies, they're all going to turn to fertilizer one day. So (laughs) it just makes sense that if you believe in native cosmology, Mi'kmaq cosmology, this idea that the Earth is a living, breathing thing, and to think that would impose on a consciousness. And if you impose on a consciousness, then there's some degree of right and wrong. Mm-hmm. Or there's some degree of, you know, fuck with me and I'm gonna, you're going to find out. Yeah, fuck <laughs> around and find out. There you go. We're <laughs> <laughs> in that phase of, of, right. of climate change now. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally get it. I see that more over the course of the next couple of years where... Climate change is going to get crazier and crazier. That's, that was, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, that was the, the whole speech by Moon talking about how, you know, he said that this, this is like the payback, like exactly what you just described. And I've always believed that when you have a world full of imbalance, something's got to give at some point. And, yeah. you know, it just, you have no control over what that's going to be. And, and for you in this movie, it was zombies. This is what it is. We're coming back to eat everything that we destroyed. So it's, it's you know, there's a, that that's one of the things that I really loved about the movie. There's that kind of penultimate metaphor, too, of the capitalist eating its own young. Right. That's, that's why it makes the zombie cannibal so much more applicable to, like, you see it in Train to Basan. Mm-hmm. You see that, that, mm-hmm. that kind of juxtaposition there of business life and family life. So... You're starting to see, I don't know, I, I, I can't imagine there being another really great zombie movie coming out anytime soon, <laughs> but I can't imagine them not getting any 
any less popular either. <laughs> no, I was <laughs> going to say. Same, man. Now, we, we talked about one of the animated scenes at the beginning. The, the second animated scene was with Lysol, and it's sort of like, it almost looked like a personification of his rage. Was that your intent? Yeah, I was showing him, like, literally switch over. I was like, he's gone. Yeah. Lysol's gone. Not even. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Like, he went. Was his goal at the end to destroy his own people? Or was his goal literally, like, I'm just wiping out anybody and anything that gets in my way? I think he was under the impression that his own people would be fine. And for the most mm. part, he was right. Mm-hmm. Like, he didn't really kill any native people with the exception of his dad, which was the point right. of him setting him free there. Mm-hmm. They're setting the zombie free in a complex. But I think for him, he was kind of playing devil's advocate in the sense that we have a ticking time bomb here. All I'm doing is making sure it goes off in a way that I can control it or that he thought he could control it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think that's you know why he did what he did. There's another thing, too, that ends up getting lost because we didn't end up shooting it. It was Lilith that was bringing the refugees across. So mm. Lysol had pending oh. pent-up resentment towards her. Oh, that, yeah. I thought it was Charlie. Okay, okay that, that so makes it a was lot Lilith. of sense. First, also, also, the fact that, oh, girl's name was Lilith. I'm I like, mean, this gal can't see what this is happening. Her name is Lilith, yeah. the devil's wife. Come on. I didn't know that Lilith was friends with Charlie and was the one that was bringing people across. Yeah. See, that makes sense. That makes sense. Because I remember that Lysol did mention something like that. That decision that Lysol made is like, see, you already know she bad news. Why are you messing with her, bro? Like, that was my problem. He just couldn't stay just away. Couldn't He's stay like away. a moth to a flame. I think that's what makes Lysol chaotic. Yeah. People. So let's back up a little bit. Tell us, you grew up on a reserve. Where in Canada was it? And what year was that raid and what happened? It was uh, towards the St. Lawrence, opening up to the Atlantic. You go in and you'll find a couple of peninsulas. And one of them is Camelton, New Brunswick, Gaspe, and my reserve, Listigrish, which is on the coast of New Brunswick and Quebec in northeast part of Canada. The summer of 1980 and 81, the... Police wardens, and not the police wardens, the games and fishery wardens there were warning Micmac to stop fishing because they said they were fishing beyond their conservationalist number, which is nonsense. I mean, there was like Atlantic trawlers taking out hundreds and tons of fish out of the water while like the Micmac were taking like six, seven tons. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. they raided the reserve for three days straight and they destroyed boats, they cut nets, they assaulted people, and they arrested people. So that's kind of what the film was inspired by. You were part of the Micmac Nation. Yeah, I was there when that happened. I was like, I was living right in the center of it all. Yeah, I remember that pretty distinctly. Yeah, I was about five years old now, and it's kind of crazy to say, but those are my first memories. That's like, my brain went online. <laughs> that's how traumatic it was. It was like my brain went online. I remember the helicopters in the sky, and I remember like so many police officers. It was like they were trying to take down like a small militia or something, opposed to a handful of fishermen. Shoot, I can imagine. So the movie as a whole, like the the reserve that's represented in the movie, is kind of how you grew up. Are there characters in the movie based on people that you knew, real life people? Oh yeah, my uncles, my aunts, my me. I mean, I'm very Lysol-y. 
That's very You're very Lysol-y? <laughs> <laughs> I think at his age, for sure. I was going to say, but you didn't get your stuff bit off by us. <laughs> I was about You're to still say, here. Yeah. You're still intact, I'm hoping. But, uh, <laughs> I didn't find happiness until I had kids. Mm. I was like until I was in my 30s. Mm. So when I was in my 20s, I was kind of like Lysol, like, you know, family ain't shit, dad's ain't shit because I grew up in foster care too. And I didn't think my family was much of anything. So a lot of who I was back then came through later on. But in terms of like straight copies of people, no, not really. Mm. Well, let's let's talk about let's talk about Lysol a little bit, because I, I found Lysol fascinating. And the fact that you say it's it was inspired by your youth also makes it more meaningful. What happened to Lysol's mother? Well, it's kind of a mystery, but you get the impression she was killed violently and Mm -hmm. remained unsolved. And you get the impression that his father didn't want anything to do with them. That was the thing, because Lysol, to me, was like this character was like, you understood him. Like, you were like, yo, man, I totally feel you. I wouldn't make your decisions, though, but I totally understand. He was kind of the kill. He was like the killmonger of your movie. Right. Like you know what, killmonger was righteous though. Lysol was never righteous. He was never like he never pretended to, like he was doing anything other than what he wanted to do. That's true. That's he true. did say that at one point, and th- th- he said that to his brother, to his stepbrother. He said that. Why do you choose to be a fucking asshole? <laughs> I'm not an asshole to impress you, Joseph. I'm just an asshole. We haven't touched on the actual title. Define Blood Quantum as it applies to Indigenous people in Canada right now. Well, it's a measurement of their blood quotient to see whether or not they qualify for whatever tribal membership they're applying for. Like Cherokee, for example, would require that you have at least one grandparent. So that's 25% Cherokee in order to be a part of that tribe. Mm. Mm. The government uses this to say who and who isn't considered Indigenous and it should get Indigenous benefits, correct? Yes. And this is kind of what makes it a double-edged sword because you have a lot of people that decry blood quantum because it measures ethnicity like you would a dog, like, a, mm-hmm. like you would a breed. But by the same token, it gives you an actual ear marker by which you can say you're having a grandmother that said she was a Cherokee princess doesn't make her a Cherokee princess. We have to prove this somewhere. Mm-hmm. Well, let me, let me ask you this. What are the benefits of, for the people who don't know, what are the benefits of doing something like that? Does that mean that they get land and rights and they have their own nation? Jesus, you know what? This is like one of the kind of comical debates in Indian countries because, like, who the fuck goes out of the way to be native? Poverty. It's like abjectly terrible. You know, and yeah. yet people pursue it because there's a definitive audience and money there for people who try to represent native people. I am very curious as to why you chose horror to tell the story. Why make it a zombie film? Because you could have you could have told the story a ton of different ways. Why make it zombies? It was just 
fun. It was just like I wanted to do a zombie movie. Who wasn't? Who, who doesn't want to do a zombie movie? Right. And it like an original take on the idea, and it gave me an opportunity to do like some fun kills, like the chainsaw hanging upside down, the guy walking into the snowblower. Gave us oh. yeah. That thing, that wood chipper, snowblower thing, that was like, that was what was so funny. They didn't have a problem getting rid of the zombies. They were very efficient. Yeah. Their problem were the people that are, that possibly infected just walking in the camp. Of all your horror movies that you were watching growing up and coming up with, what were, what were some of your favorite? What horror movies inspired your work? Not really horror movies. Horror movies inspire my work, not through thematics, but through atmosphere. Mm. Like, that's mm. what I like. I like atmospheric movies, and typically those range into the horror, but not really, because there was movies when I was growing up that I watched a lot of, like, Blade Runner and The mm. Wall that were visually striking to me that kind of had horrific, kind of surreal images that I attributed more to mood than to any particular kind of dread. I was never about making scary images. It was always about making moody images. Right. And when I did Blood Quantum, yeah. it was more it was more like I was gonna make a cautious effort to just like quit dancing around mm-hmm. and just do a straight up horror movie because I had never done one before. So it was just like let's stop flirting with the idea of doing one and do one. But like am I a horror movie director? If I had a choice, I'd be doing science fiction. Ah. Really? Nice. Yeah. So like cosmic horror? Yeah. Nice. Stuff like that. That's Chuck's wheelhouse. Yeah, I love, love that that's, that's my joint. Yeah, that's exactly what I would be doing. I would be doing kind of cosmic horror cyberpunk. That's that's the last thing I was writing was a cosmic horror cyberpunk show. But I think cosmic horror has been that touchstone to this kind of ineffable dread. Like this dread you can't put your finger on or can't quite put your mind on. Because it's so existential. It's coming from everywhere all at once. Yes. And and I think that's that's one of the things about me and Cosmic Horror that that really gets me is that when you deal with a slasher, you deal with zombies, you deal with werewolves, vampires, you, you already know what that He's is. He's not scared of any of those. Nah. When you talk about the fear of the unknown, you have no idea what's coming out after you. And you're already trying to discover who you are as a person. Just on this ball, on this thing called Earth, just trying to deal with that. And then another existential threat comes out of nowhere that tells you that I'm bigger than you. It's, just, it's crazy. And I think that to me is like, is like one of the things that I, I personally for me, that I fear the most. I, I totally feel you on that. So, Jeff, before we let you go, every guest on Pop Paranormal gets asked a very important question. And that is, what's your favorite horror movie monster or weapon? And it doesn't have to be from this movie. Or a movie monster. You know who I find doesn't get enough love? Pumpkinhead. Yes. <laughs> yes. There you love go. Pumpkinhead? Hell yeah. yeah. Love Pumpkinhead. Absolutely. Who directed that? It was uh, Dan Winston. That's what it yeah, was. Yes, Dan Winston. Stan Winston. Dan Winston. Yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. Dan Winston. And it was, uh, yeah, like Mark Patrick Carducci, Stan Winston, Gary Garani, all those yep. guys. Yeah, so that was... A Stan Winston film, you're right. It's not getting enough love. <laughs> so what's your weapon of choice then? Weapon of choice? Hmm. You know what? Well, Michonne's sword comes to mind. Well, there you go. So thank you so much for hanging out with us, Jeff. We really, really appreciate it. No problem. Word up. Seriously. All right, man. 
Thanks so much for listening. We are so honored to have had Jeff Barnaby on the show. You know, there's a reason we wanted to talk about Blood Quantum. We've seen a million zombie movies, but this one, Blood Quantum, really stands out for some of the deeper themes. For real. I remember towards the end of our conversation off mic, we were talking about his potential future projects. And in retrospect, knowing what he was going through, I mean, it was it's heartbreaking that he won't be able to tell those stories. But for me, I feel like Jeff Barnaby is like Gisigu. Like he's still mm-hmm. on that island with his fist raised. Right. And he never left his indigenous land. So there's still stories there to tell. So right. I think that's that's what like really means a lot to me when I when I think about the lore in this film mm-hmm. and the fact that even in the film, they were saying death is not the end. Yeah. I feel like there's so many people that can continue his legacy that it, 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 I'm just so honored that he wanted to share some of that story with us. Yeah, I mean, this hit hard, you know, listening to the interview over again was that moment of knowing, you know, like sharing our favorite thing about cosmic horror and what that means and hearing that project that, you know, he said he wanted to do a TV show of like a a sci-fi cosmic horror. And, you know, but just understanding the philosophy of existentialism and and everything else and and all that. And honestly, I, I hope that now he can just travel the universe and live out those stories. You know, Absolutely. you're done here and you you get a chance. Your consciousness just goes out into the universe and that's that's right. you're consistently traveling. You're never stopping. So I, I wish him a, a very amazing imagination filled journey, you know, into that reality. We want to thank the Barnaby family again for giving us permission to air this episode. And we wish the Barnaby family and friends and everyone who worked on this film well during this time. And we also wanted to put out there that one of Jeff's favorite charities was the Montreal Native Women's Shelter. If you feel moved to make a donation, please go to nwsm.info. Pop Paranormal is produced by Neon Hum for Travel Channel. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review. 